Hi, I'm Deirdre Sinnott, and I'm the author of The Third Mrs. Galway. I grew up in Utica, New York, and was always curious about whether the Underground Railroad went through there. When I started doing some research, flipping through the back of any book that had anything to do with the Underground Railroad, and finally found Utica listed there, I decided to look into it. And ultimately, all that I wasn't taught when I was in schools in Utica and Clinton, New York, about the, that history I've tried to represent in this book so that it mm. gets out to a wider audience. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Deirdre Sinat, author of a historical novel on race relations in the 1830s, focusing on Utica, New York, the third Mrs. Galway. Deirdre Sinat is an independent scholar, filmmaker, author, social change activist. She's author of this historical novel. She earned a BFA in acting directing from Syracuse University's theater program. She lives in New York City's East Village and uh, loves the Catskill Mountains. Utica was actually important in the abolition movement. Why was that? Well, it's in part because of a couple of people who lived there, who came there, including Reverend Beriah Green, who'd come from the Western College out in Ohio, and was a very dedicated abolitionist. Uh, he and Alvin Stewart, who was a lawyer who came from Cherry Valley, went together to the founding meeting of the American Anti-Slavery Society in Philadelphia. And out of that, that was in 1833, and I think out of that meeting and a further debate that happened in Utica about colonization, the practice of sending free people of color to Liberia, and a debate about colonization versus abolition, Alvin Stewart was really won over to the abolitionist side, and it came out of that, all of that experience that led them to suggest that the founding meeting of a statewide anti-slavery society, that founding meeting be held in Utica. And <clears throat> from there, after, after they announced that meeting, they were under instant barrage of attacks in the, in the papers. It's like a, a waterfall of words, just calling them every name in the, in the book that they could print back then. And uh, they went ahead bravely, had the convention started uh, on Bleecker Street in Utica at the Bleecker Street Presbyterian Church, and then a group of gentlemen of property and standing had been organizing against it. They marched over to the church and disrupted this meeting, and that is what's called the so-called Utica Riot of 1835. But because... Garrett Smith, a very rich man from Peterborough, New York, was in the audience. Uh, he invited everybody to go to Peterborough the next day and to complete the work of the founding meeting of the New York Anti-Slavery Society. And in the course of all of that, Smith went from being a very big financial contributor to the Colonization Society to being the president of the New York Anti-Slavery Society in 1836. So he made a, a journey in terms of what his political beliefs were about 
how best to end the end hmm. slavery. I knew of the colonization movement and and uh, knew of abolition, but I didn't realize they were at uh, loggerheads. We recently did a, an interview with uh, Jim Kaplan, who uh, does uh, research about New York City area history, and he was discussing Marcus Garvey, the Jamaica-born uh, black leader who also uh, advocated, um, I don't know, black power or black separation, uh, and apparently he had an influence on African colonies. I I do digress, but anyway, I wasn't aware that the the two were related and that they were two schools of thought about uh, what to do about the issue. Yeah, it was a controversy that I think was hottest right around in that 1830s, 1840s time. And then it kind of cooled down after that because the abolitionists were uh, while there were never a huge amount, a huge population, a huge percentage of the citizens of the U.S., it was the the animus between the two groups uh, wasn't covered as much in the newspapers anyway, mm-hmm. as far as I can see. And I think that, you know, the the colony in Liberia had a lot of problems. They had a lot of problems recruiting people, although the you know, about 20,000 or more people did emigrate to Liberia. Um, but there was a lot of problems with disease and a lot of problems with the folks who lived in the area called Liberia attacking the colonists. The abolitionists gained ascendancy, and so I think that was one of the reasons why. I mean, I never even heard of the fact that Liberia had been a colony of the United mm-hmm. States until I was probably 40 years old um, and was wondering why there's so many names of people who are running Liberia that sounded like names of people in the United States. It was right. an outlier. Mm-hmm. And um, but so you said that Utica was the scene of this abolition founding meeting and, and so forth. But what about the Underground Railroad, in, in the, which you write about, really, in the, in the novel, The Third Mrs. Galway? That, in a sense, went through Utica? Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, I've been working with a historian, uh, Dr. Judith Wellman, on doing a survey with other local historians of the Underground Railroad in Oneida County. And this was this is a project of the Fort Stanwix National Monument and, and National Park Service, and we have been able to document like over 50 locations that have confirmed Underground Railroad stories of people passing through. And as a matter of fact, in in Utica, there was uh, in the year after the founding meeting of the New York Anti-Slavery Society. There was a rescue of two young men who were coming from Woodstock in Shenandoah County, Virginia, uh, up. They came up through New York and Philadelphia and New York and ended up in Utica in September of 1836 and lived there for a couple of months. And then a slave catcher from Virginia who knew them came up to get them, had them arrested, and they were uh, liberated in the courtroom 
by a group of black Uticans and some other abolitionists. Mm. So there was a lot going on. There was reports in mm. the Friend of Man magazine, which was or newspaper, which was the main newspaper of the New York Anti-Slavery Society, that they were weekly helping people go go through Utica, um, and you know Syracuse has obviously the the Jerry Rescue is very well known, but we found story after story about Utica and uh, are doing a report on that that will be published by the end of the year. What it was the Jerry Rescue? I, I've not heard of that. There was a man who had escaped from enslavement who was living and working in Syracuse. And I, I wish I knew the details better, okay. but I know that he was arrested and that there was a trial and that a whole group of abolitionists, both black and white, came down and spirited him out rescued him, and then some of them were prosecuted for it afterwards. And I know that uh, Jerry went from Syracuse, ended up in Mexico, New York, with abolitionist uh, Star Clark, and then went on to Canada. And it's a very well-documented thing. I believe it was in the 1850s. Mm-hmm. Um, so the one of Harry Bird and George, the two men from Virginia, is a lot earlier, but still has a you know, a similar uh, story to it. And it's un- basically unknown. We're talking with Deirdre Sinnott, who was author of the historical novel, The Third, Mrs. Galway. I listened to a talk you gave, I think it was in in, in Utica, and I was in- fascinated by the description of Post Street. What is Post Street in Utica? You know, you could walk down Post Street in a minute and a half and be done with it. It was a one-block street that originally part of a pine forest, and it has for a long time, had for a long time been a place where very inexpensive housing could be had, and it was a multinational street. So, in other words, a lot of landlords probably would not rent to African-American Uticans at that time, and probably still in that way that happens still. But that was one place where not only were people able to rent very, very small rooms in rooming houses, but also own property. Uh, African-Americans own property there, also on Hope Street on the West Utica and uh had been sort of pushed out of an area in East Utica where they originally were. That became, as time went on, one of the centers of the African-American community. And one reason for that was that there was uh, Hope Chapel, which had a very long building that went all the way through to the a block, a block, one block south, was the African-American church uh, and that congregation still exists in Utica. It became one of those focal points. And also, you know, a lot of derision as it got more African-American. People would call it, uh, the people who there were the denizens of Post Street. You know, it was a lot of poor people, people of color. All you have to do is say the denizens of Post Street, and everybody nods and mm. probably knew exactly to whom you were referring. 
But there was a lot of really interesting people who lived there. Part of the project that, one of the parts of the project that I was working on, this is the Fort Stanwitz project, was looking more deeply into Post Street and trying to figure out really what was going on there. In the 1850s, a number of Jewish people from Poland came over escaping the pogroms. And I also wanted to look at how long did they stay on Post Street? Did they own mm-hmm. property? They, uh, for in general, were peddlers, and they did manage to get out of that area and form uh, another uh, center of the Jewish community over in West Utica. So mm-hmm. the street changed characters. But, for instance, there was one family, Peter Friedman, who was uh, a waiter. He was well-known. He was respected. He went to a lot of the conventions and was active. He had a house there right up from the mid-1830s right up until the last houses were raised uh, toward the end of the century. What is Post Street today? It's behind the bus station. It seems to me to be like the back of a number of commercial buildings, maybe the loading docks. It still exists. You can find uh, there's a historical marker there that uh, the Oneida County Freedom Trail Commission put up that talks about the history of Post Street. But there is not one active business. You know, there used to be a lot of bars and clubs and music. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a vibrant community. And that was wiped out. Mm-hmm. And you you would um, mention that you had done research on this for Fort Stanwix, which is in Rome, New York. Is that? Uh, and right. what, what was that project? That is the one that Judith Wellman, Jan Demichis, Mary Hayes Gordon, and myself have been working on for the past year. It really is what got me through the pandemic is doing research for this project. One of the National Park Service people there saw a need to try to bring to what they tell folks when they come to Fort Stanwix to try to find a connection to the African-American community. And so that was the beginning of the mission in terms of trying to do a survey of what was going on from, you know, pre-revolution on. You know, we found that there were black troops who were who had mm-hmm. been in the Revolutionary War, who were went through there, and other stories uh, about, specifically about Fort Stanwix and Rome, and then widened out to the entire uh, county. Let me um, ask you about the, specifically about the, uh, the novel, The Third Mrs. Galway. Is the story based on an actual historic incident? The Utica riot is the backdrop. The plot starts with a young woman who is recently married to a prominent colonization supporter who finds two people who have been escaping enslavement in her shed in the back, and she doesn't know what to do, or she doesn't know if she should do anything, and she doesn't want to do anything because she doesn't want to get in trouble. That incident is all novel. It's all Mm -hmm, fictional. Those characters that I follow and the people who uh, come together, for the most part, are fictional creations. However, there are a couple of people who are real historical figures who played a part in the 
committee of 25 gentlemen of who disrupted the abolition convention and Alvin Stewart is a big character in the novel. The judge Chester Hayden is also uh, one of the people who was, he was the first judge of the Oneida County and that court sat in Utica and he was one of the primary organizers of the disruption of the anti-slavery convention along with Congressman Samuel Beardsley, who goes on later to become New York Attorney General. Um, So Mm -hmm. very important people were involved in disrupting this convention. And their point was they thought that all of this agitation would lead to further massacres in the South and a split in the U.S. The problem wasn't the agitation against slavery, in my opinion, the problem was slavery. And that was what Mm. had to be gotten over. It it seemed to me when, over the years, dealing with the Underground Railroad and the role of upstate New York in that, there was, I don't know, there's been a kind of smugness about what we uh, white um, New Yorkers think about that era. It's like, well, we were doing the right thing, but... We really weren't, were we? Or... Well, the vast majority of people weren't, of course. I mean, that's that the the number of people who were abolitionists was quite small when you look at the whole population. But they did have. I mean, they they were organizing out of Utica a number of speaking tours. So there were people who were touring all over New York and founding anti-slavery societies all around in all these different communities. So it really was a growing movement, but still it was only a small slice. And people love to say that, you know, um, that that they would have been involved uh, in it if it had existed today. Um, And, you know, I, I love that people have the impulse to think that they would have, but life is challenging and difficult and you know you sometimes you don't put your neck out where maybe morally we should one of the things that Bariah Green one of the reasons he lost his job at the Western Reserve College was because he gave these four sermons and one of the points that I take away from his four sermons that got him well he 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 resigned but that I take away from that was that if you see a great wrong you have to work to right it and that was what abolitionists were doing. Part of what I wanted to show is that if you're not faced every day with enslavement, and as people in New York State were no longer faced with that after the slavery was abolished in New York, then it doesn't feel as urgent to you, and you're not necessarily doing anything mm-hmm. about it. And you, you know, maybe you are not somebody who's going to boycott sugar or boycott cotton because of mm-hmm. the fact that it comes from slave labor. And I'm, there's parallels today. You know, there's a mass incarceration and other elements of our society that I think are great wrongs, that it's uh, not easy for everybody to get involved in. You might feel that it should not be the way it is, but to actually get involved in uh, engaging in activism. Or in the case of the people who are in the Underground Railroad, breaking the law, in order mm-hmm. to breaking what they felt was an immoral law to do the right thing, you know, that's not everybody. Did you write this story 
during the pandemic, which was also the time where America was grappling with the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd and, and other racial issues? Uh, no, <laughs> it took much longer than that. You know, it feels like it okay. took a very long time. I started writing uh, in 2015. At that time, it was also the 180th anniversary of the founding meeting of the New York Anti-Slavery Society, and I organized a, with other activists a, a commemoration of that in Utica. But I had wanted to tell this story from the moment that I found out about it in the, the Utica riot, from the moment I found out about it in 2007. But it took me a number of years to get to the point where I decided, okay, I'm going to do a novel, and because I wanted that, you know, a way for people to learn this history that I never learned, because I think it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it just turned out to be so much fun to write and to be able to use my imagination. When I started, I knew sort of where the whole story was going, but not completely. It was based on research that I found one of the moral elements of the story that is very important. Um, and when I found it, I turned to my husband. I'm like, Eureka, I know exactly what this this fact that I just found out. I know it's how going to fit into the book and then really make it. So, you know, it. I had it. It was already in production by the time the pandemic happened. And, and as I say, I feel glad that I was able to do a lot more research during that for really helping to unearth the life of a lot of African-American people in Utica or who passed through Utica, and I'll be writing more about them. Oh, the, these, the characters that you introduce in the novel? I'm going to write a new, another novel, but it's going to be about upstate New York during the, uh, the American Revolution from the view of a woman who's married to a loyalist. That is something that I just got interested in when I found a book in Berry Hill Bookstore, uh, south of Clinton, New York. It's uh, it's a great bookstore. And it was on this commission for conspiracies during the war. So I was reading through that and saw that women who were who had loyalist husbands were offered a chance to go to the to the loyalist lines to join them and they had to decide if they wanted to stay or go. So that's that's the next novel. But I also yeah. want to write about the the people who lived in Utica who, you know, and and show some of the lives of people who have been been not as well documented uh in in history. Well, the the um the loyalist issue it's something that um, comes up in my part of the Mohawk Valley. Uh, are the good folks at the Fort Plain Museum have been having these conferences for years. Of course, they became more virtual during the pandemic year. But it, the events always attracted descendants of loyalists in Canada. It was a you know a whole other side of the story that we hadn't heard much about. Yeah, I agree, and it it seemed like that there was, you know, it seemed to me that it's like a civil war, and with a with a war against uh, uh, Britain, but it's also a civil war in terms of your neighbor who might believe something else, who's acting in a seditious way, as according to the the patriots. 
so I want to get into that. I want to get all the way into that and uh, and and plan to. But uh, back to the to the novel, the, the third uh, Mrs. Gal- Galway we, here in the, the eastern part of the Mohawk Valley and down in Albany, people have become more aware that there were you know a number of slaves in the in the, the, our part of New York uh, during the early 1800s. And in your story, the the family has a uh, an African American woman who was formerly enslaved by them, uh, who kind of like was the house manager. I mean, what can you tell us about that in terms of your story, but not giving away too much, I suppose? Well, Maggie is one of those characters who, you know, when I started writing, I didn't realize that she was going to be important, but I wanted to have, uh, you know, a presence in the house of somebody who had been enslaved, but who decided to stay after 1827 when everybody pretty much was freed from enslavement. So, I, but she just, as a character, just bloomed beautifully and became extremely important to the story. You know, I wanted her to have a, a rich history. Uh, that's what I went about figuring out. And she just, you know, she just rose out of the page. A friend of mine read the book and she said, you based Maggie on me, didn't you? And at the time, I was in denial. I said, no, 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 no. And then later, I had to finally admit, yes, I did, actually. I did. <laughs> and she was very happy about that, because uh, Maggie is a terrific character who has a lot of impact on the book and um, on the lives of the other characters. And she just was just born fully formed. I just love her. And logistically, how did the Underground Railroad work? I mean, it, it's a long way from, let's say, a plantation in Virginia uh, to get to Canada, which I believe is where the, they were going. It c- kind of reminds me some of the um, migrants who make the journey from Guatemala through Mexico to get to the United States. Uh, and they do that by jumping on trains. How, how did they do it then? Now, the trains, in terms of upstate New York, didn't exist until 1836-37. And so a lot of people were walking or got onto a boat or a ship of some kind and traveled that way. Uh, for example, the, the two men uh, who came from Virginia for real, they had been given money by the woman who owned them and told to go because she didn't want she was ill old she didn't want them to be sold to the to the much more uh, horrible work in the south so she sent them on their sent them north and they had never heard of an abolitionist till they got to philadelphia and i think there's also a number there was a number of safe houses that dotted all the way across new jersey so if if you could get yourself to philadelphia you you would probably be able to a hookup with the Underground Railroad, and it's a series of safe houses, uh, despite the the allegorical novel by Colin Whitehead, which is so wonderful and reproduced so well right now on television, that there is not really a train underground, <laughs> but <No. clears throat> that, that they, you know, in Utica, for instance, there was uh, James DeLong, mm-hmm. who was, worked with leather, 
and he would leave his back door of his house open and people had the you know were given the address at the previous place down uh, further east and they'd go in there at night and he'd come down in the morning and there'd be people sleeping on the floor he provided blankets and stuff like that and one time he came down and there were 21 people Wow. And so he marched them over to his church, which was the Presbyterian Baptist Church on Bleecker Street, um, right near the, 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 the Bleecker Street, Pres- no, I'm sorry, the Bleecker Street Baptist Church, which mm-hmm. was right on uh, Bleecker Street, right near the Presbyterian Church, and took them to services and then had them sent on. So is it open secret in a way in Utica? There were certainly people who opposed it. They, I think a lot of it was done on foot. Mm-hmm. A lot of it was just struggling forward in the same way that people are are struggling forward uh, trying to get into the United States. Deirdre Sinnott is author of the historical novel, The Third Mrs. Galway. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudworth.